Welcome, beautiful world, to Barbarian Noetics, the podcast dedicated to the human spirit. I'm your host, Conan Tanner. For today's episode, we welcome Captain Lisa Johansson to the podcast. Lisa served as a weather officer in the Air Force. So it's interesting to hear her take on the whole experience, some of her stories, and her experience uh, being a woman in the armed forces. We also talk about uh, her being a young mom. I always wonder how uh, parents, especially of super young kids, manage their sleep deprivation. So I I asked her about that. Uh, Because I don't know about you all, but I lose my gourd if I don't get enough sleep for an extended amount of time. My gourd flies off my neck. It scoot, scoot, begoots off to the distance like Duck Hunter, and it's a wrap until I get some sleep. So uh, kudos and props to all y'all out there who are dealing with the sleep deprivation that accompanies having an infant or young child. Anyways, let's get on with the podcast. Um, Hope you enjoy. It's Captain Lisa Johansson on Barbarian Noetics. get right into this podcast but first a quick clip from the gentleman who sponsored this episode the venerable mr graham hancock regarding a lost human civilization that's been wiped from the archaeological record due to a global cataclysm such as a comet or asteroidal impact about thirteen thousand years ago we're going to hear from him and then we're going to get into this pod with captain lisa johansson
See, what we've got to consider is that we are looking at objects which might be a mile wide that are coming into the atmosphere at 70,000 miles an hour, and they are hot, you know. Some people will remember Comet Shoemaker-Levy 9 that hit Jupiter back in 1994. That was a small comet, just two kilometers wide, broke into about 20 fragments. The explosive power of those impacts on Jupiter was 300 gigatons. Now, let me put that into perspective. The entire world's nuclear arsenal, were it to go off at once, would be 6.4 gigatons. So you're looking at something beyond imagination. The, 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 the power of these impacts is absolutely colossal. Numbers, numbers don't do it. Just imagine a world on fire, a it world changed forever. The explosion that hit Jupiter was about the size of the Earth, too, right? No, 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 no. This was a comet. Uh, about I mean, two, I mean the, 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 the impact. Oh, the, the, the plume, plume itself. Yes, yes. It was like the size yeah. of the yeah, Earth. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. So we're, we're looking at something that when, when it happened, it was, what's the timeline around, what, what was the calculations around somewhere around 11,000 years ago? Well, there's actually a period. This is, this is an, an oh. episode rather than a single incident, and that's part of the mystery. First off, there are the impacts 12,800 years ago. That causes this cataclysm centered on North America, but global. And global temperature plummets. It, I mean, people who talk about global warming or today, what, what happened, the change in temperature 12,800 years ago is just stunning. And I think it makes sense of why all around the world we have a story of a global flood. This is, this is not something confined to the story of Noah in the Bible. This is a universal story of a cataclysm that changed the world and wiped away a former golden age and left us with the present order of things all around the world. And secondly, all around the world, and this is intriguing, there is a, a universal fear of comets. Now, why should we be afraid of comets? We see comets up in the sky. They whiz through. They have this nice tail. They look, they look pretty. Why should we be scared of them? But every culture in the world has myths and traditions that associate comets with disaster. Uh, and, and I think it's pretty obvious why. Because this, this comet impact 12,800 years ago was remembered by the survivors. And they passed that memory down to their children and their children's children. And it's still with us today. And it's now we know based on something very real. Well, it seems like to me as a layperson with all this evidence and all this evidence that correlates, it's all corresponding. It all seems to fit together. It would, it would seem that this would be something that a, a lot of mainstream scientists and archaeologists would be extremely interested in. Like, why would they... Why would they try to ignore something like that? The this? first thing they've tried to do is to get rid of it. This is often the case where new information emerges that contradicts established, established theories. And it's a strange phenomenon in science because we like to think of scientists as, as rational and, and, and reasonable people. But the fact is that when you get very committed to a particular model, to a particular idea, I think you start to connect your own personality to it. And any attack on that idea becomes an existential attack on, on you yourself. But it's like North America is missing from, from the map. They, they talk about hunter-gatherers coming in here across the Bering Strait. And there's still a, a, a dogged faction of archaeology that wants to maintain that that just happened about 13,000 years ago. Um, and, and that there was no human beings in the Americas before that, although the mass of contradictory evidence is overwhelming that dogma as well. It's obvious that the Americas were populated long before that, and those po populations did not only come in across the Bering Strait, they came in in, in other ways as well. And, and, and then there just seems to be nothing for a very long time, and, and North America is kind of left out of the story of civilization. Well, now I think we know why. 
because North America was at the heart of this disaster. It was at the absolute epicenter, and the slate was completely wiped clean here. And that's what our archaeologists are, are looking at. They're seeing a white clean slate, and they think they're seeing the beginning of something. Actually, they're not. Lisa Johansson, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Conan. Thanks for coming on. I really appreciate your time. Well, thank you. I'm happy to be here with you. I know you've interviewed a few of um, my friends prior. It's been fun listening to you. <laughs> Good. I'm glad to hear that. Yeah, it's a, it's a little tribe of barbarian philosophers, and it, it's expanding all the time. And I always tell people like that my early early guests are like my day ones, so that when this thing blows up, you're gonna be like, "Oh, I was a day one on Barbarian Noetics. I was there when he had like 50 followers." <laughs> <laughs> do you know, Do you know how many followers you have now? Uh, how many listeners? It's about a hundred, I think. That was the last awesome. the Very last awesome. number. Yeah, so that's a lot. Thanks. Yeah, I mean, it's um the the hope is that you get to a sort of critical mass and like. That's one of the cool things about the, the current landscape for media is that there's not as many, like, gatekeepers that are kind of, like, guarding, you know, like, the mainstream, quote-unquote. Like, you used to have to go to, like, a network and, you know, you'd have to, like, grease all these chains on the way up and get the right person's ear. And now it's, like, you... There's these seemingly like random things that occur. Like you become a meme for some reason, and then all of a sudden you have like a million followers. That happens all the time. <laughs> my new life goals. I want an internet meme done on myself. <laughs> yeah, for real. I know there's. A, I think there's like a six-year-old out there who makes YouTube. Obviously, I think his parents do the videos, but it's it's him reviewing toys. So like they get they give him toys that are like suitable for six-year-old boys, and then. He like reviews the toys, and this kid has like millions. I've of heard followers. about this kid. <laughs> yeah, he made way more money than I'll make in my whole lifetime. Yeah, they're making bank, right? It's just like so that shows the power of the current. You know, there's how many billions of human beings on the planet, and we're all connected now, which is amazing. And God help me, our daughter watches. She loves those videos too, like the toy reviews where it's like watching other people play with toys. <laughs> she enjoys that as much as actually playing with toys herself. It sometimes it seems that way. Yeah, we have to we have to limit her video consumption. I was going to ask, do you do the whole like you limit the screen time? Yeah, I mean, fortunately, 
our daughter, you know, she's always more interested in playing. If you if you will play with her or go outside, she'd much rather do that than watch TV. And how old is she again? She is three and a half. Okay, and then you just and then you have a new newborn as well, who just turned eleven months. Wow, man, I can't believe it's been eleven months already. He's almost a year old. I know. Oh, don't remind me. Are you going to do anything special for his year, first year birthday? Um, you you know, we'll do one of the, we'll do like a cupcake. We'll let him smash one up real good and, <laughs> you know, get a, his first sugar high. Nice. Are you, you're literally, you're going to have him like smash a cupcake, like with his fists? Oh, yeah. You, you know, you haven't seen, like, there's a lot of Pinterest things out there people do something called a cake smash for their kids first birthday and they get like professional photographers and it's, it's really extra i guess um <laughs> super extra like, <laughs> so wow. we're, we're gonna go with a cupcake right on i didn't know that that was a thing so you just educated me oh man yeah there's a lot of things i've learned about having little kids in uh, Hawaii, um, where I lived on the Big Island for four years, like four years ago, and um, for in the Hawaiian culture, like the first birthday is a really big deal. So it was like uh, parties all the time, like big old luau's on the beach and stuff for people's first birthday. It was pretty fun. Uh, I w- yeah, that would be wonderful. We uh, we live in San Antonio now, though, so um, and it's going to be crazy hot by the time he turns one next month. So there's not a huge Hawaiian. Uh, there's not a huge Hawaiian population in San Antonio. <laughs> not that I know of. Oh, I'm shocked. I thought that was like a Polynesian hub. <laughs> so, oh gosh. Um, is it getting hot in San Antonio? You know, we've been lucky. I don't know if you guys have nice weather there in Phoenix right now, but it's been unusually cooler most days, and uh, I've been loving it. Yeah, that's amazing. Any sort of like last last bits of cool that us desert people can get is it technically a desert in san antonio or is it like brushland or what is it um you know that's a good question they call it hill country near like san antonio and austin it's having grown up in the west though i mean it doesn't seem very hilly to me Mm -hmm. um i i I don't want to be hating on texas i uh i call it kind of swampy here it's just it's very 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 humid so are there like lots of big trees and stuff um, no, no, it's, I, I guess somewhere in between the actual, you know, marshlands of Louisiana and the desert of New Mexico. Okay, that's a good way of describing it, yeah. I just, I realize I've never really thought about the, the like, topography of that part. I mean, I know Austin has some swimming holes and stuff around it. Yeah, and there's actually, to the north of us, there's some beautiful, um, some of the largest underground caves that you can go and sightsee in the tours and um, there's uh, large bat populations that are there. Ooh, I love it's that. really pretty fascinating. I love bats. Have you gone to a bat cave and checked it out? Well we did we did a cave tour um, Natural Bridge Caverns I think it's called Nice. Um, just to the north of us and then of course I mean there's tons of bats that live in there and then Austin as well it has its famous uh, bridge where all the bats come out in the evening. Oh, right. Yeah. Yeah, there was this one uh, old abandoned mining town in Arizona called Ruby, Arizona, that I was, I was at about, like, 10 years ago or so. And, um, oh, there's an Amazon person coming to my door, but I think she's just going to leave the package. Okay, cool. She's just going to leave it. Um, 
so on this in this abandoned mining town there's a uh there's like a legitimate bat cave and the dude that like was caretaking the i guess is like it's a town but it's kind of an abandoned town so he's caretaking the town and he took us out there and he's like you guys are gonna love this and so we went like at at uh, dusk and when we arrived at the mouth of the cave there was like no activity at all and then like like a burst of just like a black cloud like literally yes. millions of bats just like sprang out from this cave and, and they were flying in our faces and it was like and then i just that was just like so overwhelming and then i look up and there's like literally a cloud of black moving across the sky and it was just like so majestic and then these uh peregrine falcons started coming in and just like picking off the bats like as the cloud moved through the sky oh they're such amazing birds damn i was like um, this is some nature nature is lit right now <laughs> you know i've never heard of ruby arizona i'm ashamed to say i i mean i grew up in phoenix but i don't know where that is not many people um, have heard of ruby so don't feel bad about it it's um it's I, down uh, it's south it's close to like the mexico border Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, the bats. I mean, they can. They're so. There's such a big population here that. Um, so my husband flies aircraft out at the local air force base here, and they don't do a lot of nighttime flights because of the bat problems. Whoa. So I've heard. Damn. Um, I mean, they're just there's that many, and of course, you know, bats, birds do not mix with airplane engines. <laughs> yeah. Um, don't so they, they call to, that? They have to be cautious. <laughs> they call that biological interference. I think right. <laughs> Well, I mean, I would say, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You're like, it's not, not a very sensitive term, but yes, yes, they do. <laughs> um, yeah, right on. So I, I was thinking that today on my, um, on my bike ride, like what I wanted to talk to you about amongst, I have a bunch of things I want to talk to you about, but I want to uh, delve into um, like the life of a, a, a parent of two young kids real quick. And um, okay. I, I always wonder, like, so me... Like, if I, I don't know if maybe I'm just, like, extra special or something, but, like, if I don't get sleep, if I don't get adequate sleep, I lose my mind. And it happens, like, within a matter of, like, two or three days. Like, if I'm just getting, like, three hours, four hours of sleep, I start to go literally crazy. And I'm, like, I know that's a part of parenting is, like, is essentially sleep deprivation. And, like, how do you deal with that? And, like, how big of a deal is it for you? How big of a deal? Oh, man. Well, it's real. The sleep deprivation is real. Um, I just think, like, it all passes by in a blur. So I think while you're in the trenches and you're in the midst of it, like the worst of the sleep time, I think you just kind of lose touch with the outside world. <laughs> I mean, at least I know I did because I'm a stay-at-home mom now. And so I didn't have to be anywhere. I didn't have to get out. So you just kind of, like, let yourself go for a little while. Mm. I, I don't know how moms who have to show up early for a job can mm -hmm. can do it with a newborn or you know toddlers waking up like everybody interrupting your sleep. Yeah, I mean I swear to goodness some nights my kids will sleep through the night and like my dog will wake me up. Oh, and I'm like you've got to be kidding me! Like no dog, no. That's rough. <laughs> yeah, what the hell, um, the dog? But Come you on. just we've gotten through it and. I have been like a lot less less than graceful, I guess you could say, um, through some of it. And I feel just my husband probably is the worst of it. 
he he would definitely agree with that. I mean, you just bicker over things that aren't important. Mm-hmm. You find yourself irritable. It's just you get through it. You get through it like anybody What's, gets through any difficulty. Do you have? Did you have like a? like specific techniques that you utilize to get through it or did you just kind of like is it one of these things like the old Chinese aphorism like when one, when one must one can <laughs> probably a bit of both yeah. um, I've been real lucky my babies um, have both loved breastfeeding and so and I've been blessed with the time at home with them to do it mm-hmm. like breastfeeding can be really hard for a lot of ladies and there's just a lot of pressure put on you as a mom to do it. And I've been lucky in that regard that it's just, it's been so easy for me to breastfeed. Mm-hmm. Unlike other things, it hasn't, not everything's been easy. Mm-hmm. But I am a big, like, nurse on demand, comfort nurser. My kids just get a milk buffet. And so that's my technique to just <laughs> get through the time. A milk buffet. <laughs> they do. They do. They're very healthy. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, your your kids are beautiful. Very, very beautiful kids. Oh, thank you. Um, yeah, so that's so wild. So, like, everyone always says who has children, they say, like, something to the effect of that you don't understand how deeply you can love something until you have a child. Did you have an experience like that, like, with um, the birth of your two kids? Yes. I mean, yeah. I don't like to say you don't, you can't understand. I don't like to say that. I feel like some parents get up on their high horse about that sort of thing. Mm. But uh, it's a new, it's a whole new level. And it's just a whole different type of love. Mm-hmm. I mean, you, it's true. You would just, I would do anything for them. I look at them and my heart just wants to leap through my chest. I mean, it is just so profound, the love that I have for them. What happens, like, what's the difference in terms of your feeling about the this being that's coming in the world? What's the difference between, like, say it's, like, the last day of your pregnancy, so, like, the, the child is fully formed, basically, but just in, still inside, and then that moment when you hold the baby for the first time? Is there, like, uh, is, that, is there a switch that goes off, or is it, like, already even before the baby's born, you feel, like, just that same sort of love for them? Oh, these questions. These are sweet questions. Um, I'm going to tell you, the thing that happens when your baby first comes out is that um, your heartburn immediately goes away. Oh, nice. And it's really, like, amazing. <laughs> yeah, that sounds really... <laughs> damn, I didn't... I, that shows how little I know. I didn't realize that there was, like, heartburn as part of late-stage pregnancy. I didn't, oh, I didn't know that. Oh, it was really bad for my second... Um, but I don't like the very initial for me I had both cesareans so I didn't you know I'm always a little bit sad that I didn't get to have that I don't just experience I'm both sad and glad I mean it sounds horrendous as well yeah but uh like the the moment I saw them I felt like they looked I don't it's just like I couldn't I just couldn't believe I couldn't believe and I thought oh my gosh why is their skin pink why are they it's like the worry instantly started for me, too. Oh, my God. I don't know. It's <laughs> yeah. just, it really does. Wow. And they're just the most perfect thing. And they're kind of alien-like in a weird way for, like, the first month or so. And then they kind of start developing their little personalities. Mm-hmm. And it's just it's so sweet. How early were you able to detect, start, start to detect, like, the quirks of their personalities for each, um, each child? 
I mean, you could argue in the womb because neither one of my kids held still. Mm. Um, my baby boy actually just has been walking this past week, just prior to 11 months, which is uh, kind of on the early side, and my daughter was the same way. And I swear it's just because they hate holding still. Oh, wow. Like, they're just really, really active. Yeah. Um, but, like, once I start smiling at you and really looking at you around, like, six to eight weeks, I feel like that's when all the magic starts. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's crazy. Um, damn. What's, like, uh, something that's been, like, totally unexpected for you about, like, uh, these first few years of parenting? Um, gosh, totally unexpected. I, I'll be honest, I I didn't know I like being a parent as much as I do. Oh, wow, you actually really like it. <laughs> I do. That's awesome. I do, I totally, I love it so much. Well, I mean, full disclosure, so I went through the full IVF process to have my babies. I mean, I really wanted to have children. Mm-hmm. And, um... This is coming from someone, I think I, I told you, I was like, you know, in the past, had you asked me a decade ago, I, my answer would have been, I don't ever want kids. Hmm. So I don't know. It's like a switch went off in my body. It's hormones or something. Mm-hmm. And I decided I really wanted to have a family. And, you know, we went through so much to get there. And I, it, despite all that, I still wasn't even 100% sure that, like, I'd really enjoy it to the extent that I do. Mm-hmm. And um, I embraced it. Like, I'm in a lucky position. Um, my husband's got steady work. I'm able to stay home with a sense of security. You know, there's there's times I feel, like, guilty for leaving the workforce. Hmm. But uh, at the same time, like, I wouldn't have it any other way. Well, also, you really haven't left the workforce because being a mom is, especially a mom of really young kids, is, is work, you know? Oh, it is. No, yeah, I'm not downplaying that. It's just you don't get a paycheck. You don't get a paycheck. But, yeah, it's it's funny that, like, people consider, like, this distinction between, like, work and, like, you know, for example, being a stay-at-home parent. But it's, like, how – that's, like, the most critical work possible because you're, you're, like, forming the blueprint for this uh, human being that is going to – play out their entire life in the world you know so it's like and and obviously those first few years are really formative so it's like what more critical job could there be and it's just it's one of those strange things about the modern world that i feel like um in many societies in the past we don't get it right now yeah Yeah. (laughs) we don't get it yeah i was gonna go for the whole thing of like it used to be more it seems like it used to be more of a community thing like bringing up kids there was like you know, there was mom and dad, but there was, like, just, you know, a whole community of people there. It's like, so it's almost like many, many parents, you know, and, like, the, it seems like that's, it's so different now because everyone is in nuclear families in these distinct, uh, separate, you know, homes, walled off. It's just, yeah, it's interesting. I know. And that, you know, that's, like, a good and bad thing about military life now, um, being married to someone who's active duty, we're far away. We're geographically far from any, you know, blood relatives. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, we have, you know, sort of a tribe of, of fellow military members. Because really, when we first get here, like, the only people we know are each other. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're very supportive. Like, they're very, very supportive of families. That's good. Oh, you're breaking up a little bit. I'm still here. I can hear you good. Oh, okay. 
cool. Um, yeah, I would say err on the side of like speaking a little bit louder into the mic. Okay. If possible. Um, so I don't, I, actually, I confess, I don't know where the mic is. Let me. I'll just lean in a little closer. That's that's actually yeah, that's better. Okay, perfect. Yeah. <laughs> we should just spend the whole podcast just like ad- adjusting like the levels of our voices. <laughs> I know. Yeah. Sometimes your guests, yeah, we get (laughs) lost in our thoughts and we'll fade away. Yeah, for sure. (laughs) Um, So I want to talk to you more about the experience of um, having IVF uh, twice. That's correct. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, talk about like, yeah, like that is, that is, uh, it doesn't get more committed than that in terms of like what, you know what I mean? You really have to like, there's so many steps to to get to the outcome that you want like what was that process like like was it was it very clear once you made the decision it was super like clear in your mind and you didn't have any doubts or anything and you just moved forward or was it there moments of like what are we doing um well i can only answer for myself i swear my husband might he probably had a lot more of those what are we doing moments than I did mm-hmm. um, but I attribute that to not having ovaries <laughs> um, I mean for real yeah <laughs> there can be a lot yeah. attributed to not having ovaries like, and a lot attributed to having ovaries ovaries are pretty foundational they really are <laughs> <laughs> oh it's been I'm, actually, I'm kind of glad you're asking about this on air or on your podcast because there's just so many people who go through it and it's only now kind of becoming less of a taboo subject or less of, not taboo, but just like, just not discussed. Mm-hmm. It's becoming more of an open discussion mm-hmm. amongst females and amongst people of, I guess, reproductive age. Mm-hmm. Um, it was, I mean, it's terrible going through it. It's uh, nobody wants to do it. You always, it's, you know, just the irony of it. You spend so much time preventing and then when you're ready it doesn't happen right and with my situation i mean it was just compounded by at the time my husband was um doing pretty frequent deployments when we first started Mm -hmm. um so i just remember feeling very depressed about that when he would leave and i wouldn't i would find out i wasn't pregnant Mm -hmm. and then you know he had to go through a training program and we moved and in my case um I feel like the last many years of my life have also been spent not only dealing with fertility stuff, but just gynecological problems that, that probably cause the infertility. But um, I've had a number of surgeries and um, just problems on top of not even being able to get pregnant. So it's, oh, wow. it's really hard. Yeah. Like, it's, it's hard. Yeah. Yeah, I, didn't, I guess I didn't realize you had um, so many surgeries. Um, yeah, I mean, I like to crack jokes about it, like, but it's, it's not, it's not funny. Right. Um, and it's pretty terrible. And a lot of women actually have what I have is called endometriosis in it. It can just cause really painful periods. It can cause infertility, um, just a slew of problems. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of misinformation about it. And it's just, I look back and I think to myself, like, how did nobody ever mention this to me? Just any gynecologist. How did nobody ever mention it to me that, hey, this could be an issue? Yeah, right. You had to just, like, find out on your own just through, like, why why is this so painful and why is this going on? 
Like, did you diagnose Correct. you diagnosed yourself pretty much? No, it finally happened um, when I couldn't get pregnant. I feel like that's when I finally got to the medical body. attention. And just as luck would have it or unluck would have it, like that's when problems kind of started getting worse for me. Mm. Um, and the doctors, I, it took some very sympathetic doctors. It was, it was interesting going through the process because I met a lot of doctors who just were very dismissive about things and other doctors who were very compassionate. Um, and so you just, you learn a lot. You learn a lot through the process. And I, the thing I learned the most is to just trust my own gut Hmm. about what needs to be done, about what I'm feeling. Like I'm the one who's in my body, not, not this doctor who thinks he or she, you know, might know what's going on. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's, that's so important. I feel like that's so, that's so important for everyone on both sides of the aisle to really internalize is that to like, to believe like when your body is sending you a message to like take that seriously and just because you might go to a doctor and he or she might blow you off that doesn't mean that you should blow off your own feeling like yeah I've, i hear so many stories of that of people who just like had a sense within themselves you know when they were getting all this other information and they kept on following their intuition and then discovered that yeah they were right you know about like you know some sort of medical issue or you know even like psychologically too i think that that that's true as well like, Absolutely, yeah. it is. I think for a long time I like uh, kind of rejected the idea that like I might like benefit from like some mental health counseling and stuff like that. Like you know, it was just kind of like power through it, blah blah blah. And I know that's like different from a physical thing, but yeah, it's really interesting. We just really have to like trust ourselves with with how we're feeling about our health, all aspects of it. Yes, yeah, and I. I'm happy to say we've come out, at least I've come out wiser for having gone through all of it. I have beautiful children. I mean, we're so lucky. There's a lot of people who just don't get the happy ending that we we got. Is that pretty common that like even even with IVF, it does not not work? You know, I'm not sure because there's just so many factors that and there's so many issues that they still just don't even understand, I yeah. think. You know, some people never even get answers. Like, why did they never get pregnant? Why did they have a bunch of miscarriages? You know, why? Why? And they're just left with questions. Mm-hmm. Wow, man. That, yeah. That must be so difficult. Because it's like, I, yeah, I, I feel like the decision, just the decision alone to, like, let's try to have kids, that's, like, a major decision. And, like, once you make that decision, that's kind of, in a way, you're, like, jumping in. And then so you jump into this decision... And then it's like there's another obstacle, <laughs> like a pretty big obstacle. So, yes. Yeah. Have you been able to? Well, I have to say, Mother Nature. Oh, go for go it. Go ahead. No, you first. Oh, I was Nature. just going to say, Mother Nature knows what she's doing in terms of just putting the drive there because, like I said, it really was like a light switch went off. Like mm-hmm. there was just no question that I I wanted children. Mm -hmm. And so when it came down to, oh, you can't have them naturally, or, you know, you probably won't have them naturally, I'm sure, you know, miracles may have happened had I been patient enough, I suppose. But uh, uh, without, you know, it was just easy to have that drive there. Like Mother Nature put it there, and I knew that if I didn't try every possible just kind of treatment out there that I would have looked back and regretted it. 
you know, 10, 20 years from now. Yeah, I mean, talk about, like, you can't really get more consequential of, like, your decision to, to, to go through with it, like, has resulted in two souls, two incarnate souls. <laughs> like, that's pretty consequential. It's amazing. Yeah. It's amazing. <laughs> Um, the question I was going to ask you, have you been able to meet other uh, families who have gone through IVF? And has that like been uh, nice for you to be able to relate on that level? Um, yeah, I've met a few. And, you know, some people like to talk about it. Some people like to keep it very private. Mm -hmm. um, it's been helpful. You know, I actually, when I was going through the whole process, I should have looked it up. I don't remember the name of it. But there was a podcast I like to listen to. I think it was called like starting a family and the hosts talked about all sorts of fertility treatment options, adoption options. It was just like she would have new guests and doctors and families every week talking about their fertility journey. Oh, that's amazing. It was very helpful. Hell yeah. Yeah. And that's like um, a good example of like the type of thing, like that podcast or that, that sort of information to be put out, like, it would have been so much more difficult for that to, like, get put out for, like, mass consumption, like, 20 years ago, you know, because it's such a, it's a specific topic. And, like, you know, if you're not, if you're not currently going through it, you're not really thinking about it that much, you know, and it's like, it's just so cool that now we can, um, you know, we really, we can have the, like, you can find like-minded people in, like, every single facet of your life and what you're, what you're going through and what you're interested in. I know. Yeah. I'm glad you point that out, the positive aspects of the internet, like, because there's a lot of bad ones, too. Yeah, yeah. I think it's really, it's really trendy right now to, like, shit on the internet a little bit, because social media is kind of, um, I mean, I, I think it, it is pretty toxic, but social media is not the internet, you know, and, like, um, the internet, like, I, I always see it from a Jungian perspective of, like, the, the world wide web signifying the global oneness and global unity and it really does in so many ways because there's now like you can connect with someone in Sierra Leone you can connect with people in Romania like you can connect with people all over the world if you really make an effort and you don't have to actually go there <laughs> like that's incredible I know and to think we had pen pals in grade school yeah right pen pals yeah I remember did you did you have any <laughs> pen pals I feel like I did, but in a typical uh, Lisa fashion, I kind of flaked out on the whole thing. You know, I started a project and never followed through. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I had uh, I had a pen pal in high school, I remember. We, we went back. And then I was uh, one of my acquaintances from high school went to jail, and I wrote with him for a while, too. Oh, and it was interesting because... Someone from your high school went to jail? Oh, yeah. Yeah, uh, a few. <laughs> Uh, but uh but yeah it was interesting because before he he went before he got arrested and all that stuff happened like we we were like acquaintances like very much so like we'd be we'd sometimes interact in like pe be on the same team or something like that we'd maybe spoken like a few words to each other and then when they um the teachers came out and were like look if you want to reach out to the you know him he'd really appreciate it and this is his contact info and then like huh. right off the bat from the first letter he like just poured his heart out to me and it was really powerful oh, wow. it made me it made me like yeah, it really opened up my eyes actually to the plight of prisoners, which I think it's that's something that gets really overlooked because people um, like don't see the forest for the trees, and it's easy to be like, oh well, they're criminals. But it's like, well, all right, like there are 
like if you know there's a lot of really bad people that are put away and that's like people who really should not be out in society like there's certain crimes that are so heinous that it's like you forfeit your your chance and maybe it kind of sucks but i'm sorry you fucked up but then there's other things like uh, you know a lot of nonviolent offenses and uh, drug offenses and stuff like that that people end up spending enormous amounts of time in jail for and like those people you know like they they deserve better than the, the life that's been handed to them for sure so of course yeah, yeah. I, I i feel like it's getting more attention or else maybe just the sources i listen to mm-hmm. talk about it frequently um i mean i know I, I hear about it on npr an awful lot and um i mean even kim kardashian was in the news for helping that's right. um a lady who had a life sentence for like a nonviolent crime i believe i yeah. think she helped her petition to help her in early release yeah, she did, and my hat's off to her. I think that's amazing. I know. She, she used her, you know, it's that's another thing. It's, like, really easy to, like, shit on the Kardashians and stuff, but it's like, dude, she used her platform, and she, like, really, really helped someone. Like, I, I think know. she got the ear of, like, the president or something like that. Like, she really, like, got the ear of, of some movers and shakers to make that happen. <laughs> but, have you ever um, volunteered at a prison or anything like that? No, I never have. Um, truthfully, my closest experience with prison might be watching Orange is the New Black on Netflix. <laughs> <laughs> totally ignorant. I do not know. Yeah. How many people like have had their views of prison shaped by Orange is the New Black? <laughs> uh, well, I'm one of them, so I don't, yeah. <laughs> yeah. There was a while uh, when I was in college that I trained to be a yoga teacher. I was going to teach yoga in prison, but the, that fell through at the last minute. And then I've looked into it here a bunch, but it's like they really want to like climb up your ass, like to be to be a volunteer at the prison. They want to like fucking drug test you and all this bullshit. And I'm just like, that's a lot. It's a lot to like ask for just wanting to like help people out. To teach a yoga class, my God! It's probably not like that in all states, but Arizona, yeah. I mean, Arizona has a—it's <laughs> got a ways to go yeah, yeah. for prison yeah. reform, yeah. But um, anyways, <laughs> how do we get on prisons from IVF? <laughs> <laughs> I have no idea. <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> so uh, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about. So um, you served a country in the Air Force. Correct. And how many years were you in the Air Force again? Um, I did four years. Okay. And so your your story is kind of interesting because you ended up in meteorology. Correct. So yeah. H- I, I did study it in my undergrad. Okay. All right. I didn't know so that. So it wasn't completely random that they put me as a weather officer. Mm-hmm. Um, did you like? Did you apply for that position, or was it like a surprise that you got that position? Like, how does one become a weather officer? Um, well, I, I doubt anyone you know is looking to become one. But hey, you never um, know. You never know. <laughs> <laughs> no, I did. So I studied meteorology in my undergrad, and um, like a lot of people who go to college, I just I didn't have a big plan for afterwards. So I did not do academy, any military academy. I did not do ROTC. I just, I went to university like normal person, civilian. And um, I happened to meet the ROTC director there. Mm -hmm. And he is the one who suggested that I apply for officer training school. 
And um, so I applied for the OTS, Officer Training School Program. And it was a lengthy process, but they accepted my application and uh, with a guaranteed, you know, position that I would work in meteorology upon graduation. Oh, wow. Okay. Cool. So it's, yeah, it's like a different route to becoming a military officer. Um, you can kind of go straight from civilian. Three months, you do a three-month basic training, and you graduate, and you are a second lieutenant upon graduation. Okay. So when you filled out the application, did you specifically say, did you specifically kind of apply to be a weather officer, or were you just were you just trying to get accepted into the um, officer training? Um, I specifically applied to be a weather officer. Okay. And... So the military, I mean, they have certain requirements they want to meet each year and so many positions they want to fill. And so they, that was a position they had, you know, a need for at the time. And so I was, like I said, I was guaranteed to work as a weather officer. Dude, I feel like weather officer is like, if it's not already, it's going to be like an electro pop, like indie electro pop band name, like really soon. Uh, it's, just this, it's just this gut feeling <laughs> I have. <laughs> it's a badass title. I'm a weather officer. It sounds like you're like you're like I uh, I work the weather. I am a demigod. I can make it rain. <laughs> <laughs> I am an officer of the storm. But no, it's way less glamorous or exciting than that. Um, I mean, really, the meteorologists are kind of like the nerds behind the desks. Um, you know, they go outdoors, of course, to see weather, but. For the most part, we're kind of like, you know, at, at our desks. Was it for uh, our entire shifts? Did that drive you crazy having to stay at your desk for all that time? Um, it depends. I mean, you know, what, so obviously the weather changes all the time. Um, I forecasted for different areas across the country. I kind of worked. Um, I only worked in two different locations stateside during my career, but um. A lot of that time was spent training, training others um, on nights when there's a lot of weather or days when there's lots of weather. Uh, like, of course, it's much more exciting than a bright, sunny, beautiful day. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. So are, is there like, does the, does the uh, is it the Air Force specifically that is interested in the weather or are you providing like weather for all the armed forces? Um, so the way it works, at least when I was in, I'm assuming it's still that way. I separated in 2011. Mm-hmm. Um, the Air Force weather supports Army weather as well. So we forecast for all Air Force bases, Army posts. Um, Navy has its own weather, so they do. They would actually train with us. There was a lot. Of, there were a lot of naval um, students at the same weather training um, Air Force base that I was at. Okay. Yeah, because I was going to ask, like, so if, because, you know, there's a lot of people always monitoring the weather, like news stations and stuff like that. And so it's like, do you guys have your own independent, like, channel? Like, you do your own research and come to your own conclusions? Or is there, like, some sort of, like, shared master brain that, like, collates all the information that all the, the weather workers or weather predictors, meteorologists, that's, <laughs> that's the word. Yeah, no, um, that's a good question. Yeah. Um... Uh, so information is shared. I'm not like we don't have you know telephone conferences every eight hour shift or every you know like 
um, every day. Yeah. But so National Weather Service, in terms of stateside forecasting, National Weather Service is really, they are the best. Johansson, but first, a quick word from our sponsors. Today's episode of Barbarian Noetics is brought to you by Graham Hancock, the author of Fingerprints of the Gods and Magicians of the Gods, two nonfiction books which lay out a plethora of compelling evidence pointing to an advanced, lost human civilization that was wiped from the archaeological record about 13,000 years ago due to a massive global cataclysm, such as a comet or asteroidal impact or an unthinkably destructive solar storm. In the early 2000s, while he was researching his 2005 book, Supernatural, Graham Hancock traveled to the Amazon to drink the Vine of Souls, Ayahuasca. It was this experience that inspired him to, for him to write his first book of fiction, Entangled. And Entangled tells the story of a supernatural battle of good against evil, fought out across the dimension of time on the human plane. I find this idea fascinating due to my own experience imbibing the vine of souls, and I can certainly relate to uh, that sort of a vibe of the forces of light and the forces of darkness dancing their dance across the dimension of time. All right, let's get back to the podcast with Captain Lisa Johansson and Barbarian Noetics. does its own forecasting and it has to make its own calls so um, I don't know if you had this segment earlier but I was saying the National Weather Service is really like they're the best when it comes to forecasting stateside their forecasters just have so much experience and they're just really well knowledge with their local area Um, but so with Air Force and I'm assuming Navy as well like they have specific requirements for 
whether it's the aircraft, the specific aircraft flying, or whatever particular ground mission is going on. Um, so they'll have to create their own sort of like, you know, personally tailored forecast. Okay, yeah, that makes sense. You gotta like customize it. Correct. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, it's almost like our job was like customizing. Like everybody kind of knows, it gets an agreement at the beginning of a shift or beginning of the day, like what the general weather pattern is and what to expect, but then you just have to customize it to whatever. We say the customer needs, like whatever the the base or the pilot or the, you know, whoever's requesting the information. Yeah. And did you spend a lot of time like talking directly to pilots and stuff like that? Um, you know, I actually did not, but a lot of other people do. And had I stayed in longer, I'm absolutely sure I would have. Mm-hmm. Um, I just so happened to be, to work at like a very large weather center as my first assignment. And so they did, kind of like broad forecasting and then like base level forecasting. Mm -hmm. Um, Some people I worked with would do specific pilot briefings. Um, Ours were more for the actual base, like the airfield itself. Um, And then the other assignment I had after that was I actually did launch weather. And so I worked out at Vandenberg Air Force Base, California. And um, I would be responsible for doing the forecast for either missile or rocket launches. Oh, wow. Cool. So, like, what, what, uh, what's important? Like, what do you want? What information is pertinent, like, for a missile launch? Um, for missile launches, quite honestly, not a whole lot because they'll just go. <laughs> they were always testing, right? I was never part of like a real launch, at least that I know of, you know, yeah. right? It was, I was always told it was testing. Yeah. Um, so depending on the test they wanted, they always would want good weather conditions. And then of course for rocket launches, I mean, they're so incredibly expensive mm-hmm. that they have very specific constraints and wind and cloud coverage and thunderstorms, you know, anything. Mm-hmm. Uh, that could possibly disrupt it. They wanted to know about it. <laughs> like, there's a 10-mile-per-hour 10, 10 wind out of the south-southwest. This uh, missile is definitely going to be impacted by this wind. Um, <laughs> it's going to move two millimeters to the left during its yeah, flight those, path. Yeah, those things go fast. <laughs> <laughs> uh, did you, were you, like, um, I guess you were, like, remote. You weren't, like, on the, like, close to where the, the missiles were being tested or anything like that? Um, actually, they are tested there. Oh, okay. So, yep, they launch out of Vandenberg Air Force Base. Um, they also have launching out at Cape Canaveral, Florida. Oh, right. Um, but, yeah, the unique thing about uh, Vandenberg Air Force Base is that they can launch rockets into polar orbit, which is, like, um, I guess just up and down across longitudinal lines instead of, you know, latitude lines. Oh, um, crazy because it's kind of a peninsula of california it sticks out there and whenever you if you launch something into space you obviously if there's something that goes wrong you don't want it to land over you know phoenix or los angeles you want it to fall into the ocean right oh that's so interesting yeah oh that's crazy i never thought about polar orbits before it was i mean it was an amazing job i can't believe i can't believe i got to do that like i did they see my resume? Like, wow, I'm tired for this. 
<laughs> you were just uh, you. It was the right person at the right time. It is. It's a lot of it's timing. Yep, yeah. with military assignments. Were you able to hear like when a missile went off? Was it like really loud? Could you hear it? Um, the missiles, not so much. The rockets, yes. The rockets, yes. yeah. I mean, they would cause the entire building to shake. Okay. <laughs> Damn. Were you like, did you have visual? Like you could actually watch the rocket take off? Um, so we're, when you're in, when you're working at it, you're indoors. So you don't actually see, I mean, they have tracking cameras. Mm-hmm. Um, but I had the, the honor, you know, the privilege of just going to watch other launches that I wasn't actually forecasting for. Cause there's a group of us. Mm. Um, that work there. And so it was very cool. I mean, that's pretty much as close as you can get to an actual rocket launch. Hell yeah. Man, that must have been quite a sight. It was an amazing experience and it was such a beautiful place to live out there too. So you sound like you like you really enjoyed your time as a weather officer is what it sounds like. I do. I, you know, I miss it sometimes. Um, I miss it. I, I don't miss a lot of things about the military, to be to be clear. Mm-hmm. Um, but I miss the actual weather and forecasting. Yeah, cause but it was it was pretty brutal because there was a lot of shift work and just weird hours. Mm. Yeah, you had to work like overnight and stuff sometimes. Correct. Yeah, I mean it's, yeah. that's not good for family life. <laughs> no. Yeah, that's not good for anything. I find the graveyard shift to be pretty rough. Um, so the like. What was the culture like in, um, like around the, the, were you working, what, like what building were you working at? Is there like a weather building or did you share with like other departments? Um, in the places I worked, it was, they had their, we had our own building both times at both assignments. Um, but I would often at my, out in California, I would often go, to like the operations group, I would go like to the wing group, um, or wing level rather, and I would brief, I would do a lot of briefings and, um, just meetings at other places. Oh, wow. Okay. So you, you, you were like, uh, ombudsman, like a weather ombudsman. I don't know what that is. Oh, like I'm a, embarrassed uh, to say. Correspondent. Like, uh, you would communicate, like you'd go different places to tell people about the weather. Correct. Correct. Cool. Liaison. That was the word I was looking for. There you go. Yep. Weather liaison. Man, everything, I just feel like all the terms that have weather in them are badass. Weather liaison. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So what was like, what was the culture like? For example, when you went to say the operations and did a briefing, did you notice like a a distinct difference in the culture there versus the, the weather building that you worked at? Um, yeah, I mean, yes, yes and no. So I, I was in the Air Force, so I can't speak. I mean, I know Army has its own culture. Marines have their own culture. Navy's got, everybody's got their own culture. Mm-hmm. Um, and even officer and enlisted are quite different. Just the overall, I, it's just the way people behave within units. Mm-hmm. Um, and this, you know, being on the officer side, I would say in general, people are, Everybody at least has a bachelor's degree. Everybody's kind of holds themselves to a pretty high standard. Um, I, I enjoyed it. I found it. I found it to be nice. I found it to be. 
just kind of simple. It's it's nice in the sense that like the military tells you and trains you how to do business. Mm -hmm. So it's it's like you don't have to really overthink anything in the military. At least at the lower levels. I'm sure there's many a general out there who has like sleepless nights every night trying to think of what to do strategically speaking. Yeah. But uh I mean I I found it to be usually a pleasant environment filled with, uh, um, I would say Air Force people are very sarcastic. Hmm, interesting. It's like a gallows humor kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. Did you, um, what was it like, like being a, a woman in the Air Force? Like, did you, was that like a, a something that you really noticed or, or was it just sort of like, yeah. I'm a woman. <laughs> um, you can't help but notice because, I mean, there's just fewer mm -hmm. females in the military. Um, oh, sorry. I got distracted by my husband walking in. So maybe you can edit that out there. Um, <laughs> All good. <laughs> but, I, you know, it's funny. I knew you wanted to ask me about what it was like being female in the military. And so I have just like a limited lens, right? I mean, I served in the Air Force as an officer. So my guess is there's a lot higher percentage females who are Air Force officers versus, you know, Army infantry. Mm -hmm. um, I thought it was, I, you know, I never, fortunately, I didn't experience, you know, harassment, uh, very minimal. I, I would say it's honestly the same as anywhere else. Like, I have experienced just as much harassment out in the civilian sector and just out in the public world, public yeah. schools, as I have when I was in the military. Yeah, interesting. In my particular case. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's what I'm interested in is your particular case, you know, because you hear, like, you just, I don't know, it's hard as a civilian, like, you just, you don't really know, you don't know what it's like. And then you, you catch, like, the occasional documentary, you know, there's, like, some really disturbing documentaries out there, and then you wonder, like, oh, my God, is this, like, really awful for women? And like you said, that your lens is very specific, but definitely curious about that, you know? And I'm really happy to hear that. That's, like, makes me makes me really glad <clears throat> that you had, uh, your experience wasn't, like, negatively impacted because of um, your womanhood. No, and I mean, like I said, like, you you are very aware that there's fewer females. I feel like sometimes you have to hold, well, I mean, again, this is the same as in civilian sector. Like you just have to hold yourself almost to a higher standard because people are going to assume like people look at me and they see, Oh, you're a pretty blonde lady. Like, Oh, you're going to drop out of basic. You know, hmm. I, I'm pretty sure there might've been a poll going as to when I would quit. <laughs> oh my God. But <laughs> I did in fact graduate with everybody else. Nice. <laughs> um, so you just, you have to hold yourself almost to a higher standard. And in no way am I comparing myself with Michelle Obama, but I just, I finished reading her memoir and, you know, she says it. It's like you have to do it. You know, Hillary Clinton says it too. Like you just have to do it that much better. Hmm. I guess you do have a little something to prove because people do make assumptions when they see you. Yeah. Just based on how you look. Right. Yeah, when uh, when you did basic training, was it like mixed? Mm -hmm. Yep, I would say, so my basic training was unique. Again, I did the OTS, which is Officer Training School, like a 90-day course versus people who do Air Force Academy or Military Academies. 
Um, but I think we had like 85 people in my class and 12, 10 or 12 of us were female. Yeah. So not too many. <laughs> no, no, that's true. What yeah. sort of stuff did you guys do at basic? Like how, how is, how was the basics that you went through different from other sorts of like basic trainings? Um, I wouldn't know exactly. I hear people laugh and I've heard people say I'm a 90 day wonder, <laughs> which is like implying that I did the easy route to getting my commission. Uh, um, but you know, I was sleep deprived for three months straight. Um, I put up with, you know, I marched a lot. I ate my food like really, really, really fast. Um, stood around getting yelled at for lengthy periods of time for, I'm not really sure what, <laughs> um, you know, we do, we got, go through, we go through, we do the exercises, we do, you know, all the drills and academics and <laughs> you got screamed at because you were in basic training. It's like part of the basic training. It's like to get screamed at. <laughs> I'm pretty sure it is. I think it is. Like, oh, story. I got yelled at in basic training for saying please when I gave a command <laughs> because <laughs> my flight commander was like, just chill, which is uh, my maiden name. She's like, we don't say please in the military or when you're giving a command. And I was like, oh, oh, yes, ma'am. <laughs> Did she get mad at that? Are you supposed to call her ma'am? Like, yes, and I do. I use ma'am and sir all the time now, which I didn't use to prior to the military. Yeah. <laughs> so when it's a woman, they're like, you will respond, yes, ma'am, and no, ma'am. <laughs> yeah, it, yeah. In basic training, they do, uh, you're supposed to say, sir, yes, sir. I mean, it's just, it's a little absurd. Even even when it's a woman giving an order, you say, sir, yes, sir? Oh, no, no, no. Oh, okay. no, definitely ma'am. Do you say ma'am, yes, ma'am? <laughs> Correct. Yeah, sure. <laughs> That's great. I've never, I've never really thought about that before. <laughs> um, yeah, so why did you say you had to eat your food fast? Did you only have like a certain amount of time to eat? Correct. Yep, you just get like, I don't know, two minutes to inhale your lunch. God, that's so unhealthy. <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> you know, I remember, fortunately, I was actually fine. I tend to eat my food very fast naturally, so I was I was okay. Mm -hmm. But um, a couple of the folks in um, our class, like, would get sick from eating too fast. Oh, yeah. It's just so funny to me. They're like, no, you cannot be polite and you cannot eat meditatively. <laughs> like, it's like... No, there's no time for meditation, no. <laughs> Have you heard about the whole, like, meditative eating thing? It's where, like, you, like, chew, like, you know, at least 50 or 100 times per bite, and you just, like, focus. It's like a mindfulness practice. You just, like, focus on the eating. I should try it. I should try it. I, I'm trying to because I'm like you. I'm like, I turn into an animal. Like, when I get food in front of me and I'm hungry, I just turn into, like, a, an animal, and I, like, devour my food before, like, I even realize what's what's been happening. And I've always been like that. And so, like... Yeah, I've been I've been really trying to like eat more mindfully because I already I like to eat by myself for some reason. Like I feel like eating is such a personal thing. I've just always felt more comfortable eating by myself. And I've had like I've had a few manual labor jobs where the culture is very macho and that's the culture where like you you know, it's like eat your food, we got to get back to work, you know. And that was always really like it really irritated me to the point of like I didn't really eat because if I try to eat like a bunch of food like that, then I'm just going to like feel all sluggish and messed up in the afternoon 
So but it sounds like you were, you were able to do it. I was, yeah, I was actually just fine. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you were also like in your twenties though, right? Correct. Yeah. So you can like eat Hershey's bars and like not sleep for weeks on end when you're in your twenties and somehow it's okay. <laughs> That's true. You know, I think about it and there were some folks, I think the oldest you can attend at least OTS for Air Force is like 34, maybe. Mm. And so there were some guys in their early 30s. And even that would probably have been a lot harder than it was for me at 24, I think. Yeah. So, like, what what kind of sleep deprivation are we talking? Like, how many hours were you able to sleep a night? So their standard, I want to say the lights out was at 11 10 something or 11 and wake up was at 4.55 okay um, which I mean you know you don't always really spend that whole time sleeping of course yeah um, and then yeah they don't even you don't have time to have coffee in oh. the initial oh. week or two yeah it's really painful and especially the poor guys who would who smoke cigarettes prior to going I mean oh. not only are they not getting their coffee I don't know how they survived it God. Is it like, what's the very first thing you do in the morning when you wake up? Uh, you go outside and do PT. Some some uh, um, some running or some sort of exercise. Okay, good. That would probably be the best possible thing. Like, if I was trying to go without coffee, I'd have to just immediately try to start getting endorphins. Right, right. Yeah. Damn. And um, so then how long after... How long after basic training before you got, what is it, you get, like, deployed somewhere or, like, you get positioned somewhere? How does that work? Um, so, again, it just varies between career types and branch of service. Um, for myself, specifically for weather officers, they would almost always get sent somewhere stateside to, like, a large weather center. Hmm. They have about four of them throughout the country. Um, actually, they have one in Germany as well. Some people got sent to Germany, I believe. Ooh, that's kind of fun. Uh, which would be a fun tour, right? Yeah, that would be fun. Um, but I was very fortunate. So I spent my four years, and I stayed stateside. Um, I was always, like, on the list of potential deployments. Um, and they have kind of cycles that they'll put you on saying, oh, you're vulnerable to deploy during this window. Um, but I never got tagged. Okay. So I spent my four years very happily in the United States. Yeah. Yeah. Did you ever go to Cape Canaveral? I never have been, no. I would like to one day. Yeah. And what was the name of the uh, the base that you were at again? Uh, my first assignment was at Scott Air Force Base, which is in southern Illinois. Oh, okay. Um, I feel like I saw you in Chicago one time when I was there. Yeah, I think I remember that. We Didn't we go to a, Around, jazz, we went to a jazz club or something? Oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's a very very foggy memory. Yeah. Um, and then after that, I was in California out at Vandenberg Air Force Base. Vandenberg, okay. And that's the one that's out on like a peninsula? Mm-hmm. So it's sticking out like into the ocean? Correct, yeah. It's, it's, some, it's the most beautiful place. It's, it's just north of Santa Barbara, like about 45 minutes an hour north. Sounds beautiful. Were you able to like go out and swim or anything like that? Um, I did. When I first got there, I was really brave, and I tried surfing. Mm. Um, and then, no joke, somebody got eaten by a great white shark, 
at the same place I had been going. And so I kind of what? felt like real nervous going out. Oh um, they closed the beaches for a little while. Um, but I did, I did a lot of running when I was there. I do, I miss running. Um, I did tons of bike riding. It's a very great place to be really active because the weather is just so perfect. Yeah. Damn. That sounds, sounds nice. <laughs> Um, if you can afford it, go. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> so um, I'm going to wrap up this pod, but I have two questions that I ask all my guests. So the first question is, um, if you have an animal that you connect with, or if you've ever had like dreams, like uh, repeated dreams about an animal. Ooh. You know, I should have been prepared. Um, repeated dreams about an animal. Honestly, I feel like I dream about dogs more than any other animal. Yeah. Just because we've we've had one for the past many years. What kind and, of dog? Um, what kind of dog do you have again? We currently have two dogs straight from the street. Um, one of them is actually a Labrador Retriever, and the other one is like a Dingo or like something <laughs> with <Dingo>. very large, <laughs> very large ears. <laughs> you have a wild Australian dog. I swear pet. to God, we do. <laughs> And you got him off the street? <laughs> I swear to goodness, that's what she is. <laughs> Holy crap. <laughs> but like, they just, you know what? I really do connect with them because I always, I just wear my heart on my sleeve. Like dogs are either happy, they're sad, and you know it by looking at them. And I'm pretty sure that's how I am. Oh, yeah. You can't, you can't mask your feelings. I'm terrible at it. Yeah. Have you always been like that? Yes. Yeah. And you're, you're a Leo. That's kind of a Leo yes. thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you know what your moon sign is? No clue. Okay. We'll have to figure that out for next time. Um, and then the second question I ask is, um, so what is one thing that everybody can do so that it's something that's accessible to all people that uh, can make the world a better place? Like one, like a basic thing. Oh, um... I mean, it's kind of generic, but be kind to people you encounter. Yeah. I mean, it's really, yeah, I know your podcasts can get, just get pretty deep sometimes, but if you overthink things, it just can become like too daunting. Like what can you do as a single person? And I think the best thing you can do is just like be genuinely nice to the people you happen to encounter each day. Yeah, and that in- including like people that you don't expect to encounter, like chance encounters or even yeah, like um, you know, like just individuals that you interact with while you're doing errands and stuff like that. I think about that too, the importance of trying to like cuz it's hard sometimes like if you're in a bad mood or something or having a hard day, but that will actually bring me out of it sometimes. Like if I'm ha- if I'm in a bad mood, I'll I'll remember that and I'll you know just smile at someone on the street or say something nice to like my cashier, and it does. It like turns your turns your mind around. It sure does. And I you know what I, I hated on Texas at the beginning of this, but let me say people here are really friendly. That's what I imagine. Like when I think I feel Texas. like when I go when I go out, I mean I feel like people are just so nice here. That's because y'all are Texans. Y'all are like basically. And I, I do. I say y'all now. 
<laughs> yeah, I don't know where I started. I started saying y'all. I don't know. I say it all the time now, even though I grew up north of Chicago. But <laughs> I think I met I, I met some people from Texas, and it's just like contagious, y'all. <laughs> it's so soft. But yeah, that's how I imagine. Like that's how I imagine people in Texas, just like y'all. We're from Texas. We got each other's backs. <laughs> Oh my gosh, well, I'm fixing to go to bed, so. <laughs> fixing. Right on. Well, I will let you do that. And uh, thanks again for coming on the podcast. It was really fun talking. Thank you so much, Conan. I can't wait to hear more episodes. For sure. <laughs> Talk to you later. Okay. All right. Bye.
Yeah, I'm on it, baby. <laughs> 